0: Hey, guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. So to the church in Thyatira, we're going be to begin reading in verse 18 of chapter 2. To the angel of the Lord, uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write this. The Son of God, and here he comes with his personalized description of himself, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, this revelation of Jesus is so powerful and it's a little hard to move past. And so I think that it was powerful because it had to carry with it the weight of the identity of our Lord, specifically applicable to the context of these letters. With eyes like flames of fire. As I was praying through this, there's just a couple notes that I felt the Lord had put in my heart. And, and again, this isn't to say that some other message that you've heard or some other prophetic word or some other understanding, it's not to say any of those are wrong necessarily, although some of them probably are. Um, but I would say this, that for today, for 2022, some week in June, uh, that, that this is for us for now. His vision for us is to be purified. The eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord see us in many different ways, but but he sees us like a groom that's longing for his bride. He's burning for his bride. He's yearning for his bride. And his vision for us, if his eyes can speak to us this morning of the Lord's vision for his people it is this to be purified Any anywhere we meet with God there's fire there throughout scripture anywhere you know whether it's it's a, a uh, sacrifices made, whether it's the lampstand in the, in the uh, temple, uh, whatever, whether it's fire coming down from heaven, whether it's a burning bush in front of Moses, there's a fire that's represented there. And Jesus's ability to bring us before the father, his, his right to advocate Him sitting at the right hand, speaking, existing on behalf of us means that he has to see us. His vision for us has to be purified. Purified and purifying. That's why there's this longing here and this urgency to, hey, see yourself the way the Lord sees you. Take all the mirrors out of your house, maybe if it wasn't so creepy. But but see yourself the way the Lord sees you. See each other the way the Lord sees each other, through eyes of fire. What if we looked at each other and we saw, we envisioned the purified version of every one of us? Usually those are the things that get eclipsed by the problems that we still have. All I can see is the splinter in your eye, but really I'm not even seeing that splinter. I'm just seeing fragments of the telephone pole sticking out of mine. When those eyes are swapped out for the eyes of Jesus and they begin to burn with that fury, that holiness, and that purification, I believe that we can begin to envision the bride the way that Jesus does. And there was one other line here that I just, um, I want, if you're writing things down, Jesus paints himself in this picture for John with eyes of fire. And as I read this, I just felt like the father just dropped, just whispered this to me, and he says, he sees you through the fire. He sees you through the fire. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, man, they're having some kind of party down the street. <laughs> you remember that Dolly Parton song? Two doors down, you're laughing and drinking and having a party. Two doors down, uh-huh, you're here I am trying to preach on my sermon. Some of you guys use this as an opportunity to sign up to help in Children's Church. They're clearly having more fun than we are. But he sees you through the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this maybe better than the rest of us, right? They go in, and, and I want you to get this. John's preached on this before, spoken, taught classes. They don't see him. The people outside the fire see the fourth man. The three brothers in the fiery furnace, there's no indication scripturally or historically that they were aware of the presence of the Lord in the fire. There was just the confidence in them that either way this turned out, God was still God. But he sees you even when you don't see him. He sees you through the fire. And some of y'all are in a fire right now. And you, you, the heat is getting turned up and the water's beginning to boil. And I want to encourage you that the Lord paints himself in this picture for this purpose. To remind us that he sees us through the fire. Amen. And his feet like burnished bronze. So there were a number of bronze instruments again and the tabernacle carried into the temple. Bronze, uh, the altar was made of bronze. The basin was made of bronze. But there was something interesting about Jesus saying in his picture, his, his, his image, his feet were of burnished bronze because all around the tabernacle that was carried through the desert, there were um, goat hair curtains that were held up by posts. And at the bottom of each post, was a base or a foot made of bronze. Now, the wood would have been rather lightweight, but the bronze footing on that post would have ensured that through those desert winds, through the sandstorms and everything else, that would have ensured that those posts stayed sure, that they stayed safe, secure, right where they were planted. And I think sometimes for us, it's easy for us to begin to um, draw Jesus, and we're taught to do this, to, to bring Jesus into our lives and into our understanding and into our context and, you know, to, to begin to see and envision and embrace the Lord in, in uh, what's going on in a way that we can understand it. The problem is everything we understand goes away with the twister. Everything we understand goes up in the whirlwind. Everything we understand, our understanding is the house on the sand, But when the Lord presents himself as the one whose feet are of burnished bronze, he's saying, in the same way that where you met with the Lord thousands of years ago, stayed safe and secure, I am where you meet with the Lord today and nothing about me changes. I cannot be blown, I cannot be pushed over. In fact, any time an idol is brought into my presence, it's the one that falls over. That's why Dagon to this day is headless because anything that's carried over the threshold loses its authority in the presence of God. The head is taken right off. That's a wink at the Old Testament. We have a lot of those. That's what I love about a a sermon series like this. We can just keep going back to the Old Testament. His feet are of burnished bronze. Jesus is where we meet with God. That's why everything in the temple, all the furniture, if you're doing the soul study, if you've taken Pastor John's class, all of, uh, all of these things are symbolic and representative of Christ. They point towards Jesus. And uh, we'll save that for another message. There's so much depth there. But Jesus is where we meet with God. And if we apply to Jesus the same, the same risks and, and malfunctions as we do all of our other uh, mediums and middlemen, then we won't take that connection seriously and we won't be ready to go back to it when the storm comes. But the reason he can see us through the fire is because he's not going anywhere. Verse 19. Verse 19 says, um, so he says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Again, he's starting off with this sort of high five, right? I see all these things about you, and I want you to know that they don't go unseen. How many of y'all in this room this morning have felt like some of the stuff that you've done for the Lord has gone unnoticed? Anybody? Just be real with me. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm there. But the truth is, is that anytime we feel that way, it's because it's gone unnoticed by man. No one has said, Zach, that was a really powerful message. Or, wow, what a worship set. Or, my goodness, what a great outfit. <laughs> my word. My heavens. What an embarrassment of riches. You see, if nobody says it to us, if nobody verbalizes it to us, then we've made the same mistake with Jesus again, we've drawn him too far into our tangible, buyable, sellable, stinkable, smellable world. And so we have this uh, too many Seussical plays, I think that's, <laughs> that's what's happening there. Hey, by the way, I want to give a shout out to all the kids in the room that were in Susicle. Wow. Wow. I've got a bunch of front rowers right here who were every one of the McWilliams kids were in it and you guys absolutely tore it up. Sour kangaroos all the way down to fish and everything in between. You guys were unbelievable. And thank you to the families that brought your kids out to so many practices. What a cool thing for our kids to be a part of. So we make the same mistake again with Jesus. If I'm not feeling that pat on the back, if I'm not getting that that constant affirmation, which again, we are wired to feed off of, It's not a mistake. It's not, it's not, there's not something wrong about us necessarily, but it's that the Lord has to remind us that sometimes people are going to see your deeds and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're going to take note of your perseverance and sometimes they're not. It's of little consequence to the fact that nothing goes unnoticed in heaven, nothing goes unnoticed by the Father. Those fiery eyes, That burning, yearning desire for his bride, guess what? He's watching her like a hawk. I saw what you did there. I like it. Oh, I saw that. I saw that, baby. Your deeds. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And I love this line right here. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. I want to talk about that for a second because it is a good line. You know, I'm glad that's in there because I think sometimes, you know, we, we, we check boxes, we say, has, in fact, you've heard, you've definitely heard someone say, I did my good deed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it when Christians say that, because I'm like, I'm sorry, was that a singular? Did I, did I Was there a silent S on the end of that? Oh, I did my good deed for the day, for the year, for the whatever it is, for the decade. Here's, here's a couple of things to take note of here. The fruit of the Spirit should be a passive occurrence in our lives. It should passively just be being produced off our branches, the fruit of the Spirit. By, by our lives walking in the Spirit, when we're choosing to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, the byproduct of that. See, the fruit of the Spirit isn't something that we should necessarily have to try to um, produce or accomplish. It should just happen. You should see it in your life. However... While that is passively occurring, the deeds are what we actively do with that fruit. Okay? So the fruit is there, but if you don't go and collect the fruit, it rusts on the vine, doesn't it? I think Tom Petty said it the best. The fruit is rusting on the vine. So you've got to get that fruit before it rots or becomes, you know, the sustenance for some pest that you don't really want there. And it all happens in the spirit. Things will come and feast off of the fruit of your life if you are not actively engaged in accomplishing deeds with it. Right. So, so, you know, some, some people with, um, uh, I'm trying to think, maybe, okay, long-suffering. Let's just take patience, right? Some people with patience, your patience is going to waste because you don't have to wait on anything. What you have to do actively is put yourself in a position where the fruit of long suffering in your life is worth something eternally and so on and so forth. And I've got all the love in the world. Well, how come nobody feels it? Because you're not applying it actively to the deeds that the Lord is looking for. Notice he doesn't say, I've noticed how good you feel inside. (laughs) or, I've noticed how confident you are in yourself. I've noticed how excellent you're, no, he does mention love here, but I'm gonna say him again. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. Unlike the church at Ephesus, whose love grew cold, who now needs to be reminded to be returning back to the deeds they did at first, he's saying to the church at Thyatira, You've got this perpetual thing figured out because if fruit is doing its job in a perfect world, which we know we're not in a perfect world, but something perfect can happen in us, amen? Yeah. When, when no matter how bad the world is, by design, the fruit that the spirit bears in us can perpetuate itself. It can propagate. It can, uh, every, every piece of fruit has seed in it and it can fall to the ground and exponentially multiply for the next harvest, for the next crop. And that can all happen passively. In fact, it should. If you're working too hard at it, I'd say there's probably some flesh involved there. But what are you doing with the fruit? More spirit should equal more fruit, which should equal more deeds, more deeds. Your deeds of late are greater. I want that to be said of our church. I want that to be said. I want I want I want at the end of all the things the Lord takes note of, I want the word perseverance. Because perseverance means that it gets to start over again. Your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. There it starts over again. Your deeds, your love, cuz perseverance is what empowers the body to continue on when stuff gets hard. That's that that's what keeps us actively in the deeds department. Instead of just becoming, well, as long as there's still fruit there. As long as there's still fruit there. As long as there's still fruit there. There's supposed to be fruit there. High five, there's fruit there. Who's eating it? Who is it sustaining? How is it actually performing some eternal function for the kingdom of heaven? Let's keep going. I love that he takes note of it. And just just to wrap up that point, guys, he sees what you're doing. He sees the goodness of your heart. Some of y'all who grew up Catholic, you think that the Lord only sees it when you screw up. That's just not him. That's not him. He's already, before that even happened, he separated you from that as far as the east is from the west and chooses himself not to see it. That's the truth. He sees your deeds and your love. And your faith, and your service, and your perseverance. Verse 20 says, But I have this against you. Oh, here we go. You thought you were getting out of jail free. Who read ahead? Who read ahead? Who knows, Thyatira? My wife does, just so she can fact check me. <laughs> Fake news, Zach. But I have this against you. Thank you, Lord, for always making us better. But I have this against you, that you tolerate. I want to stop right there because y'all aren't ready for the next part. We're going to do a part two to this sermon next week. Just kidding. That you tolerate. Really? We can fill in the blank after tolerate with too many things. And we're going to get to Jezebel. Jezebel. And we're going to do a deep dive on Jezebel because this letter, uh, the bulk of the body of this letter is in regards to Jezebel. We're going to cover her and I'm leaving myself plenty of time for that. But the thing that that I want to just note here is this word tolerate. Tolerate. Comes from this three-letter Greek word, aio. And it really just means to give up. Or to let go. Well, I haven't given up on them. Yes, you have if you're tolerating something. You have given up. And you can say, well, you know, I haven't given up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up with it for now and then I'll come back to it. No, you've given up. And you know who smells give up from a mile away? Satan. Some of you can challenge my theology on this. In fact, somebody already this week was a little bit, and that's good because I was talking through some of my notes with another pastor. But I would, I would propose this to you, that to tolerate sin is perhaps worse than to commit it. To tolerate sin is perhaps worse than to commit it. Because when you commit you can quit. Just ask a millennial. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. I'm a millennial. I'm 23 years old. I'm a millennial. But to tolerate is to accelerate. You see, when you tolerate sin, when you commit sin, and you know this, when you commit sin, you know that you are then responsible for the conviction that comes. You're responsible for the correction or the rebuke, and you are responsible for the repentance that comes. And you can follow that completely through, repent, confess, it's done, it's over, and never do it again when you sin. But when we tolerate sin, when we a-a-o, when we give up, when we decide that correcting or or rebuking or uh, speaking to something isn't worth it anymore. The conviction is no longer your responsibility. The repentance is no longer in your hands to do. You have placed your silent seal stamp of approval on whatever behavior continues to abound. And so when you tolerate, you accelerate. Accelerate. And it's like, it's like you know the illustration of when you tell that lie and then you can't control it. When you tell that gossip, that slander, and it just kind of, well, it's like taking a, a feather pillow and shaking it out in the wind and you have no control over which way it goes. When we tolerate sin, and, and, and it's so easy to justify, and this is what um, <laughs> Pastor Mike Montag and I got into, like a little, we, we do these like little theology talks when we bump into each other. And uh, so we were backstage. We were in the dressing room for the um, for the thing, and Mike and I are talking about this message, Thyatira, and and he's saying, you know, Zach, when you tolerate sin, what what another way of saying that is, it just means you really don't love the person. You don't really love them, because if you loved them, if you really loved them, then you would confront that thing, wouldn't you? If you really, if you saw somebody doing something. And, you know, and let's just say you're out in public and you see somebody doing something stupid and you're like, I don't really know them. I'm (laughs) going to wash my hands of that. But when you see somebody you really love, like somebody in your house, like somebody in your family doing something dumb, you're going to be like, hey, don't do that. Hey, come on. Hey, talk to me about this. What's going through your head right now? It would become a dialogue. It would become a conversation. It would become a follow up conversation. There would, be some, there would be some mentorship involved. There, depending on the severity of the, the behavior or the condition, you know, there would be uh, quite a bit of thought and consideration given to when you love. But it makes me wonder, you know, if the world is supposed to know us by our love, they will know we are Christians. Where's Karen eating at? By our love, by our love. Remember that song? Y'all sing that at camp, the year you got saved, Tim, 1850, what was it? (laughs) And and they'll know we are Christians by how we confront each other and convict each other and help each other deal with sin in each other's lives and, you know, ask each other about how we're... Not all those words rhyme in that song. And it had to be able to be played on three chords with an acoustic guitar in minor because it was the 70s and everything spirit-filled had to be written in a minor key, but the point is this what if the love that the world takes note of is not the love that tolerates, not the love that accelerates all the problems in this world, but a love that corrects, a love that rebukes, a love like the Father when He says, I discipline those who I love, I chastise those who I love. Right. <laughs> that's the love they're looking for. That's the love, they've got the other kind of love. In fact, this is a month that celebrates that kind of love, isn't it? This is a month that's set aside to tolerate, to support, because that's what tolerance turns into, right? Support, and then it's endorsement, and then it's engagement, and then it's, um, yeah. So I want to ask you guys in here this morning, as the church of Jesus, what are we tolerating? You guys know my soapbox about the the tolerance stickers with all the different religious symbols. If you like them all, that means you can't love any of them. Some of y'all, when you were getting married and you were like, well, I like all these girls. And your wife was like, then you ain't going to love me. Not today, Satan. It comes down to this place where we have, to, we have to get real with ourselves and we have to say, okay, I'm putting up with something. I've given up on something. And guys, this, this, we are positioned on the, the threshold of, of perhaps one of the most crucial times, at least in the history of our nation if not the history of the world, concerning the global church, the Church of America, the Church of New England, in what we're tolerating. Let me tell you what not tolerating isn't. It's a lot of negatives in there, I'm sorry. Not tolerating is not picketing with protest signs. It is not bombing abortion clinics. It is not throwing stuff at people when they're in parades. It is not hated anybody. It's not hate. They will know we are Christians by our, how we hate each other. Ah. My Lord, no. But to tolerate, to tolerate is not to love. And it has to start here. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And if we can look at each other through those purifying eyes of fire, If we can see each other through the fire and not move, because here's what happens sometimes. You're friends with somebody in the body of the Lord. You're friends with another, you're you're friends, you and your wife are friends with some other, and then they start to, to engage in something that's toxic or unhealthy or whatever. And here's our choice. We either stay and have to confront it or ignore it or, come on, come on, honey, let's go, let's go, let's go. Well, we're not going over to their house anytime soon. Not until they repent. <laughs> That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Come on, Zach. No, you just tolerated. You don't love. We need to love. That's right. Amen? That's right, okay, so we got to keep going. All right. Hopefully we got that pounded in. We'll just, you know, hopefully you get that. If any questions, you can see me after class. But I'll just, just a thought. F- follow-up statement here, tolerating causes someone else to stumble. And uh, just to sum it up, um, we don't have any control over that. Once you trip someone, you can't really catch them from falling in a spiritual sense. You have shifted the trajectory from forward to downward because you put a stumbling block in the way. That stumbling block that keeps coming up in these letters it, it, it literally, it comes from a Greek word that means the, the trigger of the trap, the place where the bait is set on the trap. That's the stumbling block. And now, whatever direction, whatever momentum, whatever forward motion, whatever God-given destiny that individual was on, they're now moving this way instead. Lord, help us. So he says this. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent for her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So we're going to talk about Jezebel for a minute. And, um, First of all, books, entire books have been written on the Jezebel spirit and uh, whole deep dive theological studies have been done um, on, you know, what, what is she up to now? What is the spirit of Jezebel doing now in the church? And how do we see patterns recreated all going all the way back to first Kings 21, we see Jezebel and Ahab together. And what we're going to do this morning is is go along the surface and just occasionally drop a line where we feel the Spirit leading us to do so, okay? If you're writing things down, the quick two-word definition um, that actually Jackie Santos gave me a couple years ago of Jezebel is this, illegitimate authority, okay? That's the best way to describe her, and I agree, uh, illegitimate authority. If you're not familiar with the story of Jezebel, you can go back to First Kings and read it, um, there's a lot there, and we're going to be touching on a little bit. But what the Lord says to the church in Thyatira is He says that she calls herself a prophet, calls herself a prophetess, but she teaches. Now, I know that we've dabbled a little bit in some teaching on the fivefold gifts, and we'll probably do more of that to come, but. For all intents and purposes for today, I want you to understand that there are some distinctives of the the New Testament in this dispensation, the New Testament gift and office of prophecy, okay? And the prophetic unction is this, it points, okay? It points. Now, sometimes it does that with words. Uh, We see in the Old Testament prophets um, doing it with actions. They would play out scenarios, literally, Um, occasionally you'll see that today as well. Sometimes it can be a little odd, just like it was in the Old Testament. Um, But often it is an utterance. It's a prophetic utterance that points. And what does it point to? It points to heaven. The prophet is always pointing to heaven. And so when you hear prophetic words here, a, a, a quick litmus test is, is it pointing me to heaven? Is it pointing me to the heart of the Father? And you can say, well, that's kind of like a broad wash, isn't it, Zach? Shouldn't everything really point us to the Father? Well, no, because there are other teachings that point to what's going on in your heart. There are other ministries that uh, that are given to establish the kingdom. The apostolic gift is the establishing of the kingdom, right, here on the earth. And so there's this back and forth thing happening. The teacher, it's interesting here. The teacher, if you know someone who has the fivefold gift of teaching, what we see from teachers is that there's this very clear, contrasted black and white. Now, in the other gifts, there's, there's sort of like this bridge built over the gray area, and there's sort of this grabbing people along wherever they are. Shepherds are especially good at this. They go get sheep um, from a Maybe this isn't a dangerous area. You probably shouldn't be dabbling over here. And so that shepherd's heart, that pastor's heart, they're bringing them back into the fold. They're comforting, right? They're nourishing. They're protecting. The evangelist is the one that when they're gone too far, right? Or maybe they weren't in the fold to begin with, and they're out, and they're really getting down and dirty. But the teacher comes along, and the teacher is teaching truth. Left and right. Sheep and goats. Black and white. Sharp contrast. Well, here we have a woman who's calling herself a prophetess. A woman whose role, if an authentic prophetess, if a a genuine prophetess, would be to point to heaven. But intermingled and, and muddying the waters of her supposed prophetic gifting is this other thing where she's teaching and leading people astray. And saints, listen. The reason why I think that this is important for us to understand is because it helps us to see how the enemy plays in between the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Again, we, we talked about this, was it last week? And we said, where is Satan's throne? Right? Right where you think it's not. Right in the middle of where we, uh, you know, we set up our churchy things, our institutions and our, and our conventions. And, and right in the middle of all these constructs, there's one more. Where did that come from? There's a the throne with the devil sitting on it. Oh, He's playing wherever he can in the way these gifts are operated in and used and abused. And so she calls herself a prophetess, but in reality, she comes, and if you go back to to Kings 21, you find out that Jezebel's real intent was to murder the prophets. She was out to assassinate the prophetic gifting present in the area at the time. And she did so by manipulating real authority and exercising illegitimate authority to do it. So again, this might feel a little deep for some of you, and we're not going to stay here a real long time, but a couple notes. She puts the truly prophetic to death. Today, we can see it in, in terms of the work of the prophetic, the prophetic gifting in the church. That's why I am of the convinced opinion that many, many churches have lost their prophetic edge, not just by passively using it over and over and over, but because something has intentionally come along to dull that edge. Something has intentionally come along to take the head off of the prophetic movement in the body today. And saints, we have to be aware of that. And we have to be careful because the prophetic work of the he- of, of of heaven right now is more insightful. It's more precise. It's digging deeper than it's ever been. Where there is a prophetic edge, it is surgically scalpily sharp, and it is cutting way down deep. Okay, pro- the pro- prophetic stuff is not what it was in the 70s, and the 80s, and the 90s. Okay. Prophetic stuff today is going straight into the heart, into the soul of a man and dealing with lifelong issues. And if we're not careful, saints, if we get uncomfortable with that, or if there's something about that that sets us on edge, we will become prey to that Jezebel thing. And it will come intentionally, strategically to take the edge off of that. Well, now it doesn't hurt so bad. Well, that's because it's not doing its job. she calls herself a prophetess, but she teaches and leads my people astray. A quick um, summary of 1 Kings 21 is Ahab is a miserable king. He's terrible. He's weak. And his wife Jezebel um, preys upon his weakness um, by inserting herself in decisions that she had no business being a part of. And uh, Ahab comes along and he decides selfishly that he wants a vineyard that's outside of the palace wall. And, uh, and so he goes to the owner of the vineyard, a man named Naboth, and he says, Naboth, uh, what's this property worth to you? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay you. I'll either, how about this? I'll either give you any vineyard you want in the land or I'll give you what it's worth in money, real money. You can do whatever you want. I'll pay you anything you want. And Naboth says, I cannot for the Lord forbids me to sell off the legacy, the inheritance of my family. And so Ahab comes home, head hung low. He doesn't get what he wants. And Jezebel sees him and takes note of it and and recognizes an opportunity to, to seduce him. And now it's his wife, so how can that be? Because she's operating in a way to manipulate herself into a greater position. That's what Jezebel's always doing. She's always trying to climb the ladder and attach herself to the highest place of authority that she can influence, whatever that is. So anywhere there's authority and different layers of authority, not the Nicolaitan hierarchical stuff, although she'll do it in that too, but any ladder that's there, any any opportunity to attach an influence, she'll make it to the highest place she can, and implant herself there to corrupt. So she comes along and she says, "Don't worry, Ahab. I'm going to get you that. I'm going to get you that uh, that vineyard." Now, something to take note of here is that Ahab, when he goes to Naboth, he says, "I could really use your vineyard for my vegetable garden." Anybody know the story? Vegetable garden. So she says, you know what, Ahab? I'm going to get you that vegetable garden for Christmas this year. So she says, she writes some letters to elders and uh, leaders in the town and in Nabal's family. And the, the word of God says that she writes the letters in Ahab's name and seals them with his seal. Okay? Now, this is where things go terribly wrong. This is why the authority is illegitimate. The authority is present in the name and in the seal of the one who's responsible to carry that authority. But the action is not consecrated. She does it behind his back using his name and his seal. Now, again, his responsibility is to guard his name and his seal in the same way that for those of you in this room today, that, that God's put a mantle on you, God's given you a ministry, God's, God's called you into a, a burden or some specific way to serve the kingdom of heaven. In the same way, there is a name and a seal upon that thing. And in the same way, Satan is out to not do away with that, but manipulate it. And that's why we, we have seen the world become such a mess because what has been done in the name of God, that's right? Right? If Satan wrote his name at the bottom of every letter he writes, wouldn't 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 that just be helpful? Can you just do like a, you know, right above the postscript there, just a sincerely yours, Lucifer. You know what I'm saying? Just something like that. So we kind of have a direction of, you know, okay, I said probably I'm not a Satan worshiper. So I probably, you know, I'm not going to do what's in this letter. No! Jezebel comes along strategically to, to sabotage and counterfeit real spiritual authority. Right. That's now, Ahab was weak. So she writes letters and says, let's, let's ha- throw a feast. And here's what I want. I want Naboth seated at the head of the table. If you're writing things down, write this down. False honor. False honor. Oh, I listen. If I had a top... 27 things I hate about church false honor would be number 19 just off the top of my head I'm just kind of like throwing some it's probably 18 19 somewhere like that false honor makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit so just talking about it kind of sets my teeth on edge but but that's Jezebel well, Zach, honor's not bad. Honor's not bad unless it's being leveraged to achieve a desired result. And in this case, it wasn't real honor. It was counterfeit honor. She will use the seat of honor. And I see that in churches. I, I've, talked to, I've talked to men and women of God who ought to know better. I'm sure I've done this myself. Eh, probably not. Not this, not this. I'm just kidding. I'm I'm, I'm sure I've done this. But in an effort to maybe butter somebody up, maybe you have something to gain by getting somebody on your side. Maybe you know how to get someone's guard down and that's to raise them up because the more they're exalted, the further they get away from that guard that stays on ground level. So, hey, we'll put somebody on a pedestal just to watch them fall. Let's get them up in that place of honor. That's why we need to be not not reluctant to honor somebody else, but careful in how we receive it. Because as rampant as Jezebel is in the Church of New England today, which many real prophetic people will tell you that that the spirit of Jezebel is the stronghold over the Church of New England. Um, And I I do believe that. I haven't been here long enough to actually make that statement, um, but I do believe it. Uh I, I feel like what happens, just to be real with us, we, we do this. We engage in it. We either love to be on the receiving end or we love to be on the giving end of this honor. And it doesn't come from a place in the heart. It comes from a place of, of position. How do I achieve a position? It's by honoring, honoring the person in the next position, whether they really should be honored or not whether they really should be put in that place or not. And suddenly we don't care so much about how that seat of authority is being compromised. As long as the end result is that we're moving into position. Jezebel was moving into position. She seats Naboth at the head of the table. And then she has what the Bible calls a couple of worthless men make accusations. charge him with things he didn't do. So they, the whole thing was a conspiracy. They take him out and stone him. Now he's dead. And the vineyard is Ahab's and Jezebel comes in and the whole process was done. Not so Ahab could get a vineyard, but the whole process was done so that Jezebel through that seduction could become more influential. Wait, this woman knows how to get me what I want. So now next time I want something, instead of going and asking myself, I'm going to have this woman go for me. I'm going to have her go in my place. I would venture to say that the spirit of Jezebel was very real and very present long before the person of Jezebel shows up in Kings. I think the spirit of Jezebel was present in the Garden of Eden. And saints, I believe that that in many ways, as it has come down through the ages. And I wanna be careful about this because the spirit is not a person. And I think a lot of times for us, we, uh, we, we love to just attach this to a person, an individual. When really like any of us with like flesh on our bones are susceptible, okay? So don't be like, ooh, it's her and her and her. I saw the way she looked at you, that hooker. She a Jezebel. Mm. I'm a cutter in the parking lot. That's fine, just make sure it's Walmart and not here. That kind of stuff happens in the Walmart parking lot all the time. For just a second, I wanna to speak to um, I wanna to speak to husband and wife relationships. Cause that'll get the room real quiet. Jezebel will manipulate order and authority on any level. On any level. You can see it from the oval office all the way down to your home office. The spirit of Jezebel, and again, plays out in many forms. Many functions. It's not always a woman. It's not always the high heels and the the feather boa or whatever it is that your mind goes to when you think of Jezebel, the classic seductress. We've got to be wiser than that. We've got to think beyond that. We've got to take note of what it is that's seeking to influence authority and be careful. It'll manipulate on any level. We were talking about this in staff and um, uh, John was talking about how TV shows over the last 20 years—they um, look the, the the husband-wife roles in TV shows look drastically different than they did 40, 50 years ago, don't they? Anybody else notice that? Anybody else remember when the dad was like the hero, and now he's like the idiot, the bumbling idiot that can't get anything right? He's the guy that comes in and sits on the couch and. You know, his kids boss him around and his wife bosses him around and he can't figure out his head from his rear end. And and uh, yeah, that guy should tell you something, that this is not culturally coincidental, but that there is a strategic spiritual attack on leadership, on order. I was doing reading some really fascinating statistics um, uh, that align with the generations going back to the greatest generation, they call it the great generation, um, uh, the world wars coming through. Uh, it talks about the boomers, it talks about millennials, X, all these different generations, and divorce rates, and husband-wife roles. And I'm not up here, I'm not gonna get into the argument of, you know, complementarianism versus you know, egalitarianism and all this other stuff. I feel like the Bible makes that clear enough that I don't have to. Hopefully, you'll just read the Bible. Um, But what I will say is this, that when we allow culture to influence what the conviction of the Lord is telling us, when we tolerate the spirit of Jezebel like Thyatira did, it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. They're coming from the wrong place. The source is not in order. And so let this be just a gentle, loving reminder from the Father to say to us saints, to say, we have to walk in order, the God-given order. She prays on, oh, so this um, this story, Naboth's Vineyard, I preached on it one time, I think, in... Um, I was speaking at a pastor's conference in Hyderabad, India, a few years ago, and the theme was the John 15, bear fruit, much fruit, fruit that remains. And I preached on Nabal's vineyard for this reason, because the Jezebel-Ahab duo achieves this, a vineyard is converted into a vegetable garden. Now, if you know anything about vineyards, some of the oldest vineyards in the world are upwards of 400 to half a millennia a year old. They, they just last and last and last. If they're well-dressed and taken care of, they just survive through fires and floods and storms and, and, and all kinds of crazy things um, because of the root system. However, if anybody has a vegetable garden, you know how often you have to replant everything. Pretty much exactly every year. And as I was reading this and, and digging into it, I felt the Lord remind me of that message because even though that was specifically out of uh, Kings, the Kings story, I was thinking of why the church in New England for, for generations now has been spinning its wheels. And we've spoken to this on some Tuesday nights, but I don't want to let you leave here without understanding this. You see, if if... Ahab had been a good king. And by the way, Jezebel has no power unless there's an Ahab. Okay? Jezebel gets a bad rap, really. I mean, she's, you know, a demonic entity, so she probably should. But end of day, she's powerless without Ahab. And what we have is a lot of men who are, you know, sitting on their Ahabs and, and <laughs> won't lead. And we'll fuss and fuss and fuss about a nagging wife and a dripping faucet. And uh, where's my man cave? If you if you're tempted to go curl up in your man cave somewhere and go into hibernation because you don't want to tolerate your wife. Because that's the way you tolerate your wife. Guys, you cannot expect your household to be in order. You just can't expect it. If you want to live your life like that, then just accept the consequences of it, which are chaos, illegitimate authority, and disorder and dysfunction. you got to lead your wife, men of God. You have to lead your wife. That requires getting in front of her. That requires protecting her. That requires loving her the way that Jesus loves the church, pouring yourself out even unto death. Now that's a man that most wives will, will come behind. Well, honor and respect. My wife doesn't honor and respect me. Well, there's a reason why it says, husbands, love your wives first. Love your wives first. Some of y'all look at your wife and you're like, I want my rib back. (laughs) Love your wife. Jesus gave up a lot more than a rib to get his. Lead. Lead 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 i don't know how to lead i've been watching tv for too long that's not you in fact that man isn't any man because men were designed by god to lead and you can't get away from that it's in your dna it's in your wiring there's some liberals in here and you're really struggling with this this morning (laughs) I wanna thank you for sticking it out. I love you. The Lord loves you. Some egalitarians in here that are like, I just can't come back to this church. We have to end this message like right now. I taught on Nabal's Vineyard there at the Mana Conference in India and, and how this Jezebel spirit is particularly active in ministries and churches. It seeks to reroute legacy and lineage. See, that was Nabal's commitment. And if Ahab had been a good king, if he had been a good leader, he would have realized that anybody in Israel, anybody, whether they're right outside my wall, of the palace at Samaria, or whether they're in some other tribe across, across the way, anybody's fruitfulness is my fruitfulness. If my people are flourishing, I'm flourishing. If my people are blessed, I'm blessed. If that guy has a good year and my year wasn't so great, my year was still great because he had a good year. That's the legacy, that's the lineage, that's the blessing that gets passed. That's good leadership, is when we can take inventory of the folks within our sphere of influence and say, you know what? Maybe I didn't make it in high school the way I wanted to, but I'm watching my teenagers grow up and I'm seeing the way they're loving the Lord and using their gifts. And and even though I'm still a little salty about what didn't become of my life, I look at them and realize how blessed I really am. I look at my children and say, wow, I messed some stuff up, but God blessed me anyway. How dare we, how dare we take from the hand of a brother or sister in Christ, what God has given them as a lineage and a legacy and turn it into our vegetable garden. Seasonally good. Seasonally good. But that is the compromise and the great exchange that has taken place in the church. We have traded out what was meant to be eternal in order to satisfy some seasonal awareness of of what might be a blessing. Well, I just need this to look good for now. Well, I don't really want to have to get my tomatoes from somebody else. So I'm going to grow them myself. And that's going to require me stealing from you. The person on your right and your left, guys, God's given them a calling and a legacy and a lineage. You may not understand it. You may not like grapes, but can we just be a people that affirms and confirms and speaks the blessing of God over each other? That instead of trying to take away what God's given somebody else, that we help them defend it, that we help them support it. So a couple things here. She corrupts the sharing of fruitfulness. She corrupts the sharing of fruitfulness. She prays on ministers who don't have an apostolic covering because they're easy targets. Churches and ministries that don't have an apostolic covering—they're possessive and they're toxically protective. And so she she looks for those areas and she says, "Hey, this guy's right. This guy's right across the parking lot. This guy's." Right. We've got to be so sensitive and discerning in our spirit to be able to recognize what is really coming from the Lord. Is it the heart of God? Is possessiveness and protectiveness in that gross way? Is that from God? You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a theologian to figure that out. I'm going to let you go in here in just a second. Actually, why don't we go ahead and stand now that we're in the habit of standing for 30 minutes. She's cloaked in a prophetic disguise. And I wanna, again, get this clear before I let you go. You wanna be very, very careful of someone who says these things in this order. God showed me this, or God showed me that. So that means you need to do this, or you need to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm. A prophet points with words, with fingers, with actions, with ministry, a prophet points, a teacher teaches when someone comes to prophesy and, and there is, there is a complimentary directive that comes along with that, be careful, be careful. The prophetic voices in my life, the the folks that when they say they have a word from the Lord that I stop everything and listen to, there's no commentary added to them. It's not a, here's a word from the Lord and here's everything I have to say about it. Because usually the word from the Lord is like two or three lines and then there's like two or three volumes of commentary. I think we've gotta be really careful about how we're influenced. I think that if a prophet's job is to direct our attention, then our attention should be directed. But the decisions that we make and how we respond to those things, that again comes back to the Lord and everything else, our, our relationship with him and the other voices in our lives. The true prophetic gifting does not say do this or do that. It says, can you see this or can you hear that? When it comes in under the apostolic, I believe that the true work of the Lord will neutralize the potency and the progeny of Jezebel. And I'm believing that over the Church of New England. I'm seeing a restoration of the apostolic coverings over ministries and churches. I'm seeing denominations even come into an awareness of where they've gone wrong and they're making hard decisions and changing infrastructures to in in order to come into more of an alignment. And I've talked with guys who've been part of denominations that I've kind of looked at and been like, "Mm, uh, can anything good come out of that? And I'm hearing a heart that's beating again to release the apostolic and the prophetic in a healthy way, in a way where strongholds don't have the foothold and the room that they used to Says, I'm putting to death her children because she does have children. And her children are those churches that rise up in their place, tolerating, tolerating, tolerating. Those are the children of Jezebel. And that's what the Lord puts to death. But in verse 24 and 25, and I'll close right here, he says, But I say to you, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. No other burden, but hold fast to what you have. Saints, our deeds become less impactful when the truth and the power of God slip through our fingers. See, church works, good works, justice works, all these different things that we can do, the good deeds that are void of the Spirit. The world will notice them and high-five the church for us, but, but they're not noteworthy. They're noticeable, but they're not noteworthy noticeable just means you say huh look at that <laughs> Noteworthy means i'm taking note of that i'm writing that down that's going to stay somewhere that's fruit that remains our deeds become less impactful the, the the power and the truth of god it's like it's like brass knuckles on the fist of the bride and when we hold it in our hand when we swing we do damage but when we lose our grip on the real weapons that he's, that he's given us to wield, suddenly it's us just fighting in our own strength. There's no heavenly leverage involved. He says, hold tight, hold fast. The tighter we hold on to other things, the more we lose our grip on the eternal things. And this is a call, if anything else, this is a call to come back to what you had in your hand. I don't need to tell you to keep doing deeds. In fact, you're doing more deeds now than you've ever done. What I'm telling you is to hold fast to the thing that makes those deeds eternal. Hold fast to the thing that makes those punches knock your enemy out. And finally, to the overcomers in the room, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the overcomers, keeping my deeds equals getting my authority keeping my deeds equals getting my authority isn't it funny that the overcomers get authority which is exactly what jezebel takes challenge of the authority of god and they will rule with a rod of iron the potter's vessels will be broken into pieces just in closing here i want to just Just hone in on that one line. Because some of you are like, oh, it's getting too symbolic now. I don't get it. Rod of iron, what? What about they'll know we're Christians by our love and blah, blah, blah. That word for broken there, some of your Bibles say into shards. That word for broken comes from a Greek word, suntribo. And the first place it's used is when we're told that a bruised reed he shall not break and a smoldering flax he won't quench. Everybody likes to talk about the gentleness of Jesus right there, because that's the prophecy. But nobody finishes the line. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoldering flax he won't quench until he sends forth judgment unto victory. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, we see the last place that word is used. From the beginning to the end, the Lord has reserved the authority for his people. That judgment, that judgment, Unto victory, the way that we're to rule once we're purified, once we're sanctified, once it's the Holy Spirit doing the ruling from our hearts, we will see what we've been longing to see. We will see what we've been praying for. We will see what we know Jesus is coming back for, a bride without spot or wrinkle. When we're willing to rule that way and somehow we merge the mighty grace of God with an uncompromising spirit, with one that will not tolerate or wink at sin. That's who we're called to be and that's who we're given the spirit to be empowered to do. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that while there are many things in this life that will challenge authority and order as you have presented it to us, God, I pray this morning that your sons and daughters would move beyond that Lord, that we would keep your deeds in an effort to obtain the authority that you desire to put on us. God, these are not our deeds, they're your deeds. Every one of these things, the love, the faithfulness, the the service, the perseverance, God, these are things that are done for the glory of your name and by the power of your spirit. And so we pray today that wherever that illegitimate authority has, has had a foothold in our lives, Wherever we have allowed that thing to sink its teeth into us, wherever we've been seduced, wherever we've been reduced by culture, by media, by brokenness, by shame. Father, I pray that you would see in us a people that rise up to take the position that you have called us to, to not be afraid to break what needs to break. To recognize that what you held back from doing, you did so in order to raise us up to do it for your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have the best day of your lives. Sorry to get you out of here a few minutes late. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.